1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Neha Anavarapu, and I am the host of this channel. Today, I am thrilled to be in conversation with Dr. Aniket Aga, author of the brand new book, Genetically Modified Democracy, which was published by Yale University Press in November 2021. Aniket Aga's research interests span science and technology studies, democratic politics, and agrarian studies. Genetically Modified Democracy is his first monograph. Hi Aniket, it's so great to have you on the podcast and congratulations on your new book. It's um, so well written, it's so clearly argued and I really enjoyed reading it. And uh, yeah, congratulations on the book and I hope you're celebrating.
0: Thank you, thank you so much Neha. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy that this book is finally out and uh, very grateful to you for doing this podcast with me.
1: I mean, it's totally my pleasure. Um, Let's start talking about the book soon. But I first wanted uh, for us to get to know you a little better. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps your journey to graduate school and how you became an anthropologist in particular?
0: Sure. Uh, I've taken a circuitous path to anthropology, to be honest. My Bachelors is in electronics engineering uh, from IIT Kharagpur, a sister institution of yours. Oh
1: yeah, wow.
0: <laughs> and my first job was, was with uh, McKinsey in Mumbai. As a business analyst working with uh, some of India's biggest firms, I learned many valuable skills. And one very valuable lesson that I learned was that the MBA corporate sector route was not for me. And... <laughs> So I decided that I had always been since school interested in social sciences, uh, what I used to think is psychology and later turned out to be sociology, anthropology. Mm -hmm. So I ended up applying to a PhD in business management or PhD in business management programs in the US and got through to the University of Southern California. Mm -hmm. This is where I first studied sociology and history. And was really fascinated. Uh, I mean, it just opened my eyes to a whole new way of thinking. The trouble was that organization behavior, which was my doctoral program, so that the organization behavior in the U.S. draws heavily on experimental social psychology, principally with American undergraduates as the subject population. And my interest lay in the kind of work happening in India by, by a range of people like Ashish Nandi, Nandini Sundar, Claude Alvarez. Kanchai Laiya Shepherd, as also activists like Bela Bhatia, K Balagupal, Father Tom Kucheri. I had very supportive faculty mentors in the business school and the sociology department, and they encouraged me to reapply to anthropology, as did my partner Chitrangada. And at that point, I don't know if that's changed now, but at least at that point, anthropology programs generally, but especially the one at Yale, was like a clearinghouse for people who didn't fit elsewhere, and I was both lucky and privileged to be admitted there.
1: That there is such a uh, such an interesting route, and um, I, I think there have been many people on this podcast who had a slightly offbeat track to anthropology, but I think yours is by far, I'm mean, like, wow, you went to B school and then to anthropology. That's, that's truly amazing. From electrical engineering to business school to anthro, then that's, um, that's quite something. Uh, but we're like really glad uh, that Yale Anthro was the place for you and gave birth to this uh, to this beautiful book. So the book, as you put it in the introduction, frames genetically modified crops as a problem for both science and democracy. So could you tell us a little bit about what the stakes of the book are? Why are GM crops so controversial? And how did you start thinking about this book project? So I got to Yale
0: around, so I got through to Yale around March 2010 which is when the BT brinjal or BT eggplant controversy in India was at the peak. Mm -hmm. The then environment minister Jairam Ramesh had imposed a nationwide moratorium on BT eggplant in Feb of 2010. So the topic immediately attracted me because it brought together three concerns of interest to me and of abiding public significance, which which are science, politics and agriculture. By then, I was also very keen. I mean, I had... See, my education in sociology and anthropology beyond coursework was a bit, you know, of a mishmash, like a dilettante. I was reading whatever caught my interest. But one thing which I had figured out by then was that I'm keen to study up. That is, I wanted to study powerful institutions like seed companies, scientific agencies and federal bureaucracies. So that also attracted me to this topic that here's a chance to study agricultural biotechnology, Uh, and not just how you know farmers may be responding to it. So I changed my topic in my very first term at Yale. I mean this is not the topic I had proposed in my statement of purpose and my advisor K. Shivaram Krishnan was very supportive and that's how the journey culminating in this book began. Now as far as GM crops go there are issues specific to genetic modification or the recombinant DNA technology that make GM crops controversial, in particular whether or not they pose risks to the environment, to consumers and to animals' health. So to, just to give you a small illustration, Bt cotton was never approved and until date has not been approved in India as a food crop. And yet Bt cotton seeds are crushed into edible oil. They are a constant component of uh, vegetable oil and, and sometimes, and certainly in Western India, you uh, in Gujarat in particular, you can get cotton, uh, cotton seed oil, um, crudely or you know very finely refined. Now, studies show significant differences in lambs fed with BT versus ordinary cotton seed meals. For instance, in the weight of the liver, in the amount of fat in the testicles, so in a similar way, Bt protein is supposed to degrade in the human gut within minutes. That's the assurance that was given to the environment ministry in 2010 as part of the Bt-Brinjol dossier. And yet Bt protein has been found persisting in pregnant women and even in fetuses. So, you know, there are uh, these are just two illustrations. There, is, uh, there are in addition serious concerns about the Bt gene or the herbicide tolerant gene. These are the two principal traits Of GM crops available worldwide. Uh, There are concerns that these traits can circulate, can proliferate in the environment through pollen and contaminate biodiversity. So such findings make ecologists, farmers and consumers nervous. Then there are broader issues having to do with the unsustainability and injustice that lies at the heart of the global food production system. GM crops are predominantly available in commodity crops like soybean, corn, uh, maize, and cotton. Their cultivation is linked to escalating pesticide and herbicide use, monoculture farms, and implicit or explicit corporate control over seeds. In essence, basically, uh, so basically, GM crops are controversial both on account of the uncertainties of the recombinant DNA technology and because they neatly dovetail with capital-intensive, debt-inducing, crisis-ridden models of agriculture. And that brings me to the stakes of the book. Uh, The standard way of thinking about the GM controversy is in terms of a global David Goliath-like struggle by farmers against exploitative multinational agribusinesses like Monsanto. I argue in the book that this narrative implicitly universalizes the story of the development of biotechnology in the West. We effectively end up handing over scientific innovation to the West and end up looking only at how activists and farmers struggle for or struggle against a ready-made technological product in the global South. But as I show in this book, the Indian experience is actually more reflective of the global experience because across much of the world, the state is heavily involved in funding and promoting science and in assuming the responsibility of food provisioning. So the interplay of science and politics is deeper in India, in Brazil, in Bangladesh, because here the idea that science can simply be left to experts or that food can or seeds can only can just simply be left to the market. These ideas have very little currency here. Ultimately, the fundamental question that the Indian debate has highlighted is, which bodies of science can address issues of public interest surrounding GM crops? This is a much more probing question than the question of impacts of GM crops. And it involves forms of public reasoning around both questions of interest and questions of evidence.
1: That's really, really interesting. And I think it anchors uh, the conversation about the book really well. So thank you for giving us the the context of... uh not just the empirical context, but also your stakes and the the provocations that you um, raised through the book. Uh, And you mentioned while talking about the book that you wanted to study up and you wanted to study like, you know, powerful institutions. I would love for you to speak a little bit about how you went about doing field and archival research for this book. Who were the primary stakeholders you were studying? How did you access them? And where did you go?
0: Thanks. That's a, I mean, in retrospect, that's a fun question. Of course, when I was going through this, it was uh, quite, uh, uh, you know, I, well, nerve wracking would be too much, but certainly anxiety inducing at points. Definitely. Um, so Sisnehas, you have written to fieldwork involves both preparation and luck. Uh, my empirical design was broadly along the follow the object dictum by Bruno Latour. So I wanted to conduct fieldwork inside agri-biotech laboratories, in the public and private sector, state regulatory agencies, and NGOs critical of GM crops. My my basic intuition was that I wanted to excavate how, in everyday terms, these three arenas produce facts about GM crops, what uncertainties and ambiguities hide behind their public positions, and how they contest contrarian facts about GM crops. My advisor K. Shivaram Krishnan pushed me to conduct fieldwork also with farmers. I confess that I was initially skeptical because I didn't think farmers were were, were really speaking involved in the GM debate. But he very astutely foresaw that farmers will have their own ways of responding to the debate. So accessing these sites came with their own, accessing each site of my research came with its uh, own set of challenges, Uh, but uh, persistence and repeated visits and requests paid off. It helped that Yale is very generous with funds for graduate research. And it also helped that I had a background in engineering and management consultancy. Uh, You know, I'm very often told that uh, this, my journey into anthropology from electrical engineering means I've wasted a seat you know, an engineering college seat, but I actually feel that, that even that preparation has helped me uh, do this research. So in 2013-14, which was my period of uninterrupted research, I began my fieldwork in Delhi because I was most nervous about getting inside the union government. Initially, I kept hitting a wall, and so I decided to conduct interviews with retired scientists and bureaucrats. With the help, so you know what happened, it's it's somewhat disorienting uh, while you're going through it that you wake up in the morning and it's like you're supposed to be doing this research, there's a clock which is ticking and you don't really have appointments lined up or so what do you do? or rather, in this case, ethnography. So you don't have a place to go to where you can start your participant observation. So on the help, with the help and advice of academics like Dinesh Abrol, Ajay Dandekar, uh, this the one of the pioneering biotechnologists of this country, Pushp Bhargava, Deepak Pentel, and of course, um, Ar Vasavi and the uh, scientist activist Suman Sahai. Before this participant observation could work out, I basically decided to spend my time tapping into archival material in different libraries of Delhi, and trying to set up appointments with retired bureaucrats and scientists who, you know, are generally a little more open to speaking uh, than those serving in the government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I was able to persuade a central government officer involved with GM crops to take me on as an unpaid intern. And then the ethnography began. I also worked with seed companies and farmers in Maharashtra where brinjal is commonly cultivated. Also, I can speak Marathi. Uh, I also did field work in a state agricultural university in the south. And once again, all of these sites came with their own sets of challenges. And and I'm very grateful to to, uh, the large number of people who enabled this research.
1: The book asks and answers how democracy is reconfigured during and via controversies around GM crops. And it's divided into three parts. And each part deals with one aspect of the story of GM crops and their institutionalization in India, sciences, the state and agrarian capitalism. Uh, So let's start with actually what you just talked about, the archival research that you did. So let's start with the first part in which you trace the emergence of biotechnology in India and contend that it's primarily a state project, unlike, say, the U.S., where much of the scholarly debate has tended to focus on, um, and that there were considerable conflicts around GM, uh, around the emergence of biotechnology in India through the 60s and 70s. So, could you uh, explain what the contours of these debates were in the 60s and 70s in India?
0: Yes, I think this is one of this has been one of the most interesting pieces. Uh, of, uh, of my research, uh, it's been, it's commonly thought that, uh, so the period, period, periodization goes as follows, that there's, that the green revolution happens in the sixties and seventies, uh, sorry, in the fifties and sixties. And then around the nineties, uh, there's, you know, the, 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 you get GM seeds and uh, associated with that, the new green revolution, the second green revolution, or the evergreen revolution as as it is called what i actually found out was that uh, that molecular biology begins in india much earlier it it begins around the time of independence as um, a number of biochemists Start getting trained in uh, in in what was then called just simply called new biology or modern biology, in places like Stanford, Caltech, Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, uh, in the US as also in England, uh, and something which had not which had not anticipated which I found out while doing these interviews and archival research is that uh, so actually two things. One is that Previous to this generation, so if you look at, you know, an embryologist like Panchanan Maheshwari in the 40s, in the 30s and 40s, Panchanan Maheshwari does not think that it's important for a student of biology to go um, abroad for his or her training. His own son, however, Satish Maheshwari, who's, who's part of the first generation of Indian molecular biologists, is very dissatisfied with the kind of training available to him here and believes that absolutely he must go abroad and for doctoral and postdoctoral work to learn about what's happening in genetics. So this first generation of new biologists are much more oriented towards the West as the previous generation. They come back to India, they are young, they are headstrong uh, and they find that they can either go to The conventional botany departments or they can go to agricultural science uh, universities and neither is of interest to them. So in the 60s and 70s itself there's a debate which begins inside you know in the frictions that they have with their colleagues in universities uh, whether you know universities like Delhi University or agriculture universities where they believe that they are doing cutting edge research and there is no room for them. And that is what now India has a, India had a a structure of science policy making where both Nehru and then later Indira Gandhi and even up to Rajiv Gandhi scientists, there was an apex um, group of scientists which enjoyed considerable political heft and coming from the colonial era, there were all these research councils, the Indian Council of Agricultural Research, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. So what these scientists do is that, embattled within their existing positions, they start lobbying the Council for Scientific and Industry Research and in the Department of Science and Technology for Enhanced State Patronage to Molecular Biology. So the, you know, to to so the so there was no doubt in anyone's mind that the state will have to take the mantle of promoting molecular biology. This is very different from how molecular biology begins in the US, where the principal funder initially are the philanthropic foundations like Rockefeller, like the Rockefeller Foundation. So here they are very clear that it has to be the state. They don't really have an agents, they don't have an alternative source of funding to go to. And so the debate really becomes very quickly about um, what form, what is the organization design that the. So it gets very quickly turned into a debate of bureaucratic design. So Pushpa Bhargava wants a public sector corporation which is backed by an RD. He calls it the RD cum production unit. MGK Menon is is curious whether it should take the form of a uh, a government department, like the Department of Science and Technology, or a commission like the Atomic Energy Commission, which which was begun by Homi J. Bhabha's efforts. So the debate really is about organization design, and implicit in this is the notion, which gets crystallized in the 80s, that biotechnology is its own separate field, separate from uh, its own field, separate from agriculture, from medicine and from food. So actually speaking, when molecular biology begins in India, it has almost nothing to do with agricultural sciences, which is also Jack Kloppenberg notes that this is also the case in the US. And, And this whole idea that, you know, this is a new and improved agricultural science is a much later construction.
1: In that vein, uh, how did biotechnology and biotechnologists begin to gain a foothold, um, especially vis-a-vis farming policy in the 1980s in India? How did that sort of switch happen? So that's a a fascinating
0: question. Um, In all the discussions around launching biotechnology in India, almost without exception, the most tepid response would come from the Indian Council of Agricultural Research. So how did this biotechnology gain a foothold? They didn't directly. In fact, this first generation of, uh, of new biologists were very skeptical of agricultural research, which they dismissed as applied work. As Satish Maheshwari told me, as the late Satish Maheshwari, unfortunately we lost him uh, just a few years ago. And he said to me, you know, I want to work on fundamental questions let someone else figure out how to improve yields. So there was this casual dismissal of agricultural sciences as if, you know, it's just applying something which something uh, whose fundamental uh, contours has been developed by molecular biology. So there was never any direct. So at no point, at least in my research, did molecular biologists say that, look, we have to seize control of agricultural research. But they have exercised a huge amount of influence indirectly through three ways. First, through their training programs in coordination with the University Grants Commission, by offering a parallel center for research funds, uh, uh, extramural research funds, um, at a remove from the Indian Council of Agricultural Research, and through its regulatory policies. I trace in the book how these training programs that the Department of Biotechnology, uh, so actually, you know, I should also say that the, uh, it, that people like Pushpa Bhargava and Satish Maheshwari start lobbying for a, you know, for a serious commitment from the union government around the 60s and 70s. And by 1986, they win a federal Department of Biotechnology, which is reporting directly to the Prime Minister, which, which it, at least in my reckoning, must be one of India's most successful social movements. Um, so what the Department of Biotechnology does following the 80s is it works with UGC and starts biotechnology programs in, in initially in six or seven universities like Madurai Kamraj Universities, the IITs, uh, IIT Kharagpur for uh, one, for uh, Delhi University. And later, it expands them across universities. This is where you get your bachelor's in biotechnology, BSc biotechnology programs. Now, what is this program? Uh, I mean, without uh, crudely speaking, they were training, I mean, they created through these programs, they created a substantial class of scientists trained in recombinant DNA or other molecular biological research methods. But without an adequate appreciation or background in plant breeding, which is you know the art and science of creating varieties and hybrids that are actually viable for farmers. So you know this construction of this class of biotechnologists, people trained in biotechnology, who then had to be gainfully employed either in the private sector or the public sector, exerted certain pressures on the public agricultural research system. The availability of funds, the Department of Biotechnology invested heavily in recombinant DNA research. So given that the ICR post uh, in, in the 70s, like after the Green Revolution starts going into decline, if you're a scientist in a state agricultural university, you will get oriented. In my interviews with the Public Sector Agricultural University brought this out very clearly. You know, scientists said that we understand that recombinant DNA technology is a very limited tool. But that's where there are, but you know, the funding is in molecular biology. So we have to do some of that also. A senior administrator of the ICAR said that even they are concerned that plant breeding is getting short-shifted, even though plant breeding is more important or or more directly of interest to uh, farmers and agriculture. Uh, And finally, regulation. Regulation was taken charge... Uh, the the Department of Biotechnology and the Union Ministry of uh, the Ministry of Environment and Forests took charge of regulating GM crops. They involved the Indian the Ministry of Agriculture, but but these two agencies were really running the show. So in all these manners, uh, basically, what ends up happening is. Uh, Implicitly, plant biotechnology starts overshadowing a broader program of agricultural research. And this is the indirect way in which, uh, whether they wanted or not, they started shaping farming policy based on a narrower base of expertise.
1: Thank you. That was um, really, really uh, illuminating. In chapter four, you analyze how civic epistemologies are put forth around uh, the regulation of GM crops. And you outline two documentary modalities of truth claims, um, uh, which are legal, administrative and scientific. And you do this by delving into two controversial cases from 2008 and 2011. Uh, the case of dorito chips being allegedly laced with unapproved gm ingredients which actually i remembered that whole controversy from 2008 and the withdrawal of a previously granted no objection certificate for conducting gm mustard trials in rajasthan so i would love for you to share with us what these cases were all about and what comparing them allowed you to argue vis-a-vis the regulation of gm crops so I was working, so at the back of my head were two
0: notions that I wanted to really interrogate uh, when I was looking at this material. One is, uh, oh, and yes, I mean, I didn't pick up on Doritos in 2008, but I've since then never been able to, you know, see Doritos with the same innocent eyes. Okay. <laughs> so one is this notion which is commonly held in India, that uh, the united states is very strict about gm crops and and generally on regulation and indians are very lax that's one notion the second notion was that uh, that indian regulators and this is more held in in scholarly circles that the indian regulatory agencies are technical agencies par excellence uh, to borrow from ian schools and uh, And and the problem is that through their technical, you know, through their technocratic approach, they're sidestepping, you know, what are really political questions. When I see these two cases, and especially the Doritos case, what struck me, and that's what I try to do here, is that, well, even when confronted with an outright technical problem, India's apex regulator, which is the Genetic Engineering Approvals Committee, as it was called in 2008, and now it's called Genetic Engineering Appraisals Committee. Uh, they actually did not do the one thing that you would expect any technocratic agency to do—that is actually collect samples and test them for accidental or whatever for presence of GM food. So how did they deal with it? They dealt with it by basically interrogating Greenpeace itself and taking a documentary submission from PepsiCo. Green—they asked Greenpeace, and prove to us that you have purchased this sa- sample of chips in India." Now, for, you know, reasons, for some very logistical reasons, Greenpeace had lost the receipt. They had, you know, taken a receipt anticipating this question, but they they lost it when they were shifting their offices in Bangalore. So they could not furnish a receipt. And Basically, the absence of receipt allowed the GEAC to dismiss the complaint. So how do we make sense of this? This is obviously not some, you know, technocracy sidestepping political question. Something else is going on. So now, you know, going to that first point, which is how do, you know, that Israeli American regulation or Western regulation strict and Indian regulation slack? That may or may not be the case, but what I'm trying to show through these cases is that regulation always involves blending two different kinds of epistemic frameworks. Regulation is never just about assessing facts or, you know, analyzing facts, and nor is it just about, you know, pushing through politics in the guise, pushing through political positions or political priorities in the language of uh, technical reason. They are always sitting, straddling, you know, both technical reason and administrative logic. And that allows, as I show in the chapter, both for certain surprising decisions like the Rajasthan government's decision to burn the field trials of a very, very respected senior public sector scientist, Deepak Pentel, who has been a part of prime minister science advisory councils and so on and so forth while there's a congress government at the center and a congress government in Rajasthan. So something surprising like this can happen and something surprising like India's apex technical body refusing to investigate what's happening with Doritos chips all of this is enabled in this interstices of two epistemes. So I wanted to argue against this notion that, you know, regulators are corrupt. Regulators are incompetent. I mean, they may be all that. I'm not saying that I'm not, uh, I'm not conclusively saying one way or another that, 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 I mean, that's, it's possible that, that these, that, that such logics also operate in regulatory bureaucracies, but more, importantly, you know, what is the bureaucratic practice through which even incompetence plays out, you know, if that so that's where I was trying to do and in in anthropology there's been this idea uh, coming from uh, scholars uh, you know, coming from some very fine scholarship by Akhil Gupta, Nayanika Mathur and others that one way to study bureaucracy is to partition them into elites and subalterns uh, you know, so basically or you can say senior bureaucrats, junior bureaucrats and by the vertical principle of authority. And I wanted to add to that by saying that bureaucracies can also be segmented by technical specialization or horizontal division, functional specializations, which creates a more complex architecture of power. Um, so th- these were, I thought, uh, these were some uh ideas that uh, I thought these cases speak to. Uh, and uh, and in terms of the uh, consequences or rather implications for the larger DM debate, I think it's very important that we do, and this has been something that Dr. Soman Sahai has been repeatedly saying and uh, trying to address through her public interest litigation, that you do have to think very carefully about regulatory design it's somewhat lazy to, you know, uh, dismiss them as only, you know, uh, politics in the guise of technical reason or, you know, incompetent, corrupt, etc.
1: And in the next chapter, you explore the various efforts at resisting GM crops. And what are the analytical affordances of following the emergence and the deepening of activism against GM crops? And what were some surprising findings for you? In one sentence, if I were to say this, the, uh, the anthropological
0: injunction, you know, by scholars like Akhil Gupta, Radhana Sharma and others is to disaggregate the state. And few movements have done this better in India uh, than uh, the, than you know, the, the movements critical of GM crops and the movements who have a wholesale, I mean, a blanket opposition to all GM crops. So, you know, it's linked to this question. I, I, I am often asked that, okay, what do you mean by genetically modified democracy? And that question, if anything, has become even more urgent as we see palpable shrinkage of democratic spaces in the last eight years or so. What analytical effort is, I think, it, see, going back to what I said earlier that uh, in countries like India, the state is the custodian of both scientific development and public welfare. And that creates certain that creates certain schisms and tensions in the federal architecture which activists have very shrewdly, painstakingly deployed to, you know, reinterrogate or to basically ask what kind of a GM or what kind of an agri-biotech program does India need and do we want. So they have, uh, they have, uh, been able to jockey department against department. They have lobbied state governments against the union government. They have uh, got the parliament. I think one very, I mean, uh, one very heartening finding has been for me the two parliamentary standing reports uh, on the issue of GM crops. The uh, they were unanimous reports. The first under twenty, uh, the first in 2012 under the chairpersonship of Basudev Acharya that was when UPA was in uh, power, the second under the chairpersonship of Renuka Chaudhary. This was the Committee on Science, Technology, Environment, and Forests. And this is when the NDA is in power. They are both unanimous reports and they exhibit such a, such a um, intelligent, thoughtful grasp of the issues that there's really so much to learn. And it was really, I mean, uh, even uh, it was just so, um, wonderful to see that how the parliament can uh, really you know function as a legislative and policy thinking body when it is allowed to. Um, so so this is what I really mean by uh, you know the, this is the emergence and deepening of activism against GM crops arguably is a narrow topic right because even if you succeed in keeping GM crops out you still have your agrarian crisis and you still have all the problems of farming and food in this country. Nevertheless, this somewhat narrow focus has allowed a a very large constituent number of, galvanized a large number of constituencies uh, who have then jockeyed different parts of the government. Uh, They have jockeyed the parliament, they have jockeyed the judiciary to get involved. Uh, One, something which I find very amusing is uh, how... Uh, you know, uh, uh, there's been a demand from some nationalist and some nativist groups that uh, the union government of Ayurvedic, Yunani, uh, Siddha and Homeopathy, uh, which is under the Indian Council of Medical Research, ought to be sitting in every regulatory meeting and just to make sure that Genetic modification does not tamper with medicinal crops and this demand, although has not, it's not been conceded by the Ministry of Environment, but it has been taken with great gusto by the Ayush Department. Now, I'm not getting into whether that's a good idea or bad idea, but I'm just showing the spectrum of, you know, democratic contestations that have happened around GM crops. Uh, and, and that, and, and, and let me just say to conclude this, that, I mean, to conclude this answer, that a lot of this book is, you know, uh, ends in, I mean, my research ended in 2014. So a lot of this book shares the story coming up to the UPA2 and the BT Brinjal moratorium. But, and... There's been, and no doubt, uh, that level of uh, debate, that level of interdepartmental strife we do not see in the NDA years. I mean, we are hard pressed today to find ministers contradicting one another in public or uh, different departments writing strong adversarial letters to the prime minister's office. All of this had happened uh, with GM crops and with other issues also during the UPA uh, time. So, but I do feel that something that the one contribution of GM-related activism is that it has opened up these questions and uh, and these questions are not going anywhere. And they may not be very visible right now, but, I, but perhaps, you know, in some years, they will again rise to the surface. So I do feel something has changed in our public culture where it has become much more okay to question the you know science and regulatory authority question policy making around scientific issues in a way that for instance did not happen with the anti nuclear protests and i think one sign of that is that although prime minister modi has broken with and broken massively with prior precedents for instance in kashmir but on the issue of gm crops the ups stalemate continues
1: yeah thank you and i think uh what i really enjoyed was how you're thinking about democratic participation through uh, thinking through the gm crop debate and i feel like linking it to larger questions around politics was uh, is really a, a major highlight of the book and thank you for uh, elucidating that so uh, so brilliantly just now yeah if i could say one more thing i think oh, sure, uh,
0: So the the anthropology of democracy as the field has evolved has tended to look at, you know, for instance, cultures of protest, which are no doubt important. But I think there are also issues of there. There's also the other side of of, uh, in the anthropology of democracy, which is what happens inside state bureaucracies? How do they respond to social movements? What kind of knowledge frames do they draw on? And uh, I think the GM debate in India illuminates these in ways that, you know, just goes beyond like a, you know, a South Asian case study or an Indian case study.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you were were just talking about how uh, you weren't prepared or you weren't thinking about farmers uh, being a part of the story that you were planning to tell through this book, but then you did actually End up um, you know bringing that perspective into your book and in the book you make a very important argument against reading too much into the so-called promising sales figures of crops like bt cotton as a direct evidence of their popularity amongst farmers you even write that when you expressed skepticism around whether sales figures actually tell us about whether farmers are indeed enthusiastic about bt crops you were told by both journalists and policymakers alike that, you know, farmers are not fools to be duped into something against their wishes. Actually, like, uh, couldn't help but laugh a little bit when, when you write about that interaction rather confessionally. Uh, but you went on to persist with your skepticism of this perspective. And you argued uh, through, uh, through medical evidence that critically interrogating the terms on, and the conditions under which farmers access and purchase agricultural inputs is actually very key to understanding their relationship with new technologies better. So could you explain what you found via this critical interrogation and by taking into account uh, farmers' engagements uh, with agricultural inputs?
0: Yes, absolutely. It was actually, I mean, I heard this from a number of people, but most, with most conviction, I heard this from Dr. Montek Singh Aluwalia, who was then the deputy chairman of the planning commission, that, uh, I mean, uh, with, you, you know, in his crisp British accent that, uh, that, uh, are you trying to suggest that farmers are fools? I mean, they're clearly buying this, but if, but if one pays attention, there are two claims here, right? That the two claims are one, that these seeds are popular. The second, therefore they are also working for farmers. Now, it's the second claim which I had difficulty, I still have, I mean, I still have difficulty accepting because what are we trying to say? I mean, if I give a crude analogy, uh, you know, uh, Pepsi and Maggi sales are also going up and Maggi also advertises itself as very good for our nutrition uh, with all the right balance of, you know, whatever, carbohydrates and micronutrients and iron fortified and whatnot. But are we trying to therefore suggest that, that, uh, that it's indeed good for our nutrition, Coke is good for us. Um, is, is that the argument? And if one were to challenge that argument, is the implication that consumers are fools for buying it? So I, I am very skeptical of this idea that a sales transaction turns somehow on the purchaser's intelligence. Or which is to say, there are many l many other things happening also in the interaction. With uh, it's it's not in the main about you know how, whether I'm competent to make the sale or not. So I think what was most I, I mean I could I can I I should say what has been one of the most disheartening findings for me, and I and and uh, this has already been flagged by number of scholars of agriculture in uh, like. A.R. Vasavi, like Isha Shah, is, uh, and and for instance, Glenstone's work, uh, Andrew Flax's work on uh, on fads and BT cotton, is, is what is happening to agriculture knowledge. See, the thing is, when if we are to say that, that the fact that the farmer is purchasing these seeds means that the farmer has concluded that these seeds are good for him or her, and although at least in my field work, these shop transactions were principally... Tra- were without an exception, transacted by men rather than women, Um, we are assuming that there's some kind of a knowledge base on on which the farmer makes such decisions. And I found that actually there is no... um, that what the farmer ends up buying is very often or basically exactly what happens when we go to pharmacies also right it's it's like we want a certain medicine but the pharmacist tells us that maybe we should try something else and sometimes we resist that pressure and sometimes we capitulate to that and in a similar way actually i found a lot of similarities between how anthropologists have been writing about uh, generic pharmacies and medical advertising in india and how they've been and, and what i was seeing with pesticides and seeds Generally speaking, even dominant caste farmers like Maratha farmers are not very sure of themselves when they enter the seed shop. And this again is is something which I just want to say that this is one of the, like I found why ethnographies are so important. Because in all my interviews and I had uh, designed some very extensive schedules, all my interviews farmers said that we buy what we think is best for us. It's only when I went on the other side and I, I, I... I mean, there were some very kind shopkeepers who allowed me to sit in their shops for hours and simply observe sales transactions happening. That I realized what the very important role that marketing agents, corporate marketing agents, that is, agents of uh, companies like Syngenta, Tata Realis, who go village to village advertising their products and these retailers, the enormous role they play in pushing products onto farmers, compounded by the fact that you don't really have any Indian language term for GM crops. So, so for a lot of farmers, BT cotton is a brand name. It doesn't indicate, you know, a a different kind of seed. Compounded by the fact that uh, the discourse in English around GM crops is very different from the vernacular discourse on GM crops. To give you a small illustration, this is something which my collaborator Chitrangda and I saw in Odisha, um, you know, two, three years ago on the Andhra, so on the Andhra border, there are a lot of these spurious BT cotton seeds available. Let me ignore the spurious seeds. There was a, I have a um, I mean, well, I, there's, I have with me a packet of Nuzi Vidu's BT cotton seeds, uh, which are legal Nuzi Vidu is India's largest seed company. And behind the seed packet is a disclaimer in English which says that the pink bollworm has become resistant to BT cotton. So what is the farmer purchasing here? English is not a language that either, you know, it's, it, it is a disclaimer is neither available in Telugu nor in Odia. So you know, so this is what I mean by saying that how can we make this about farmer's intelligence? We have to look at the entire political economy, we have to see, you know, the changing sociology, the changing agrarian relations which are much more responsible for what gets bought by product what gets bought by farmers than by um, than you know the intrinsic merit of a certain intrinsic utility of a certain product on just to, on a final note you know about four months into my fieldwork in western maharashtra uh, a farmer took me aside and said that uh, you know sit come sit you've been irritating us with your questions for four five months let's see what you've learned Let's see how much you understand agriculture. The next set of questions were entirely about agricultural products. So for instance, um, what is mancozid? A fungicide. What is furtira? A pesticide. What fungicide should I use on my grapes? Right? Now, if I look at older ethnographies of agriculture, see, entirely absent from this QA, this quiz was like, you know, any knowledge of cultivation practices. So there is no doubt that for a variety of reasons, agriculture, the the collective knowledge held by farming and laboring communities has been progressively getting eroded in favor of knowledge about packages of practices. Now, that is the context which is not unique to GM crops. That's the broader context of our agriculture. And therefore, in this vein, it becomes even more erroneous to to, you know, use only sales metrics as index indices of popularity and success. We have to ask far more probing questions.
1: It's funny because there's a reversal there, right? like you, you being asked the questions actually becomes the, the detail of your ethnography itself, which is, I love those uh, reversals. <laughs> when they're in you know, you write in the book, uh, how you've been asked very often, whether what your stance is on this whole BT uh, or GM crop debate. Um, yeah. Would you like to speak about that? Like what happens when people often ask you uh, your position on this? And how do you generally respond?
0: You know, I've, I've gone back and forth. I mean, I've tried out multiple answers to this question. but. <laughs> Over the years, you know, I do feel that the question itself is wrong or in a way it's like asking, what is your position on a hammer?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so GM is a tool. It can do certain things and it cannot do other things. I think the right question is what will address the agrarian crisis, the crisis of sustainability and the crisis of rural injustice or the crisis of injustice. If we start with that question, if we address, you know, what are, how, if we start from that question, if we see what are the measures that will alleviate or help address some of them, then we can see whether or not GM is part of the package, uh, you know, of the, of the solution space or not. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a solution looking for problems. And we, we have to, you know, in, in terms as anthropologists, as concerned citizens, we have to keep our eye on the problem uh, and not take a solution and see where can I fit it. With that said, so, you know, so, so in the book, I say that I'm neither prone nor anti-GM. But over the years, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that BT cotton has been fairly disastrous for India. There's a recent review by Keshav Kranti and Glenn Stone. Uh, Keshav Kranti is the former director of the public sector Central Institute of Cotton Research in Nagpur, which is a very damning indictment of the BT cotton hybrid program in India. The evidence on herbicide tolerant crops and herbicides is even more damning. So these two traits, which are the principal GM traits, I am increasingly coming to the view that they are not really part of any solution space. Now, we will think of further, uh, you know, other potential GM crops as and when they are closer to ready. But with the caveat, like I said, that we have to start from what we have to ask the right questions.
1: Yeah, I completely I I love that, especially the response about this, like asking someone, uh, how do you feel about a hammer? (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Um. Thanks a lot. I've like learned, I mean I learned so much from the book, but I've, I feel like I've learned so much uh, uh, more on top of that through this conversation and I really appreciate you taking time out and uh, indulging my questions. <laughs> um, but I have one last question for you before I let you go in, which is what are you working on now and what can we hope to read by you in the near future? So,
0: there's no indulgence. I mean, I've really enjoyed this and thank you for these questions, which has given me another chance to, you know, think about some of this research material. Uh, I'm working on two projects. The one is, is like I mentioned, uh, the, my collaborator Chitrangda Chaudhary and I are working on uh, these herbicide-tolerant cotton seeds, which... Are just proliferating across uh, across Odisha. We have uh, published two, uh, you know, preliminary pieces on it in the People's Archive of Rural India, and which we have fairly, uh, which portend fairly serious consequences for the 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 agrarian economy for biodiversity and for health. So that's one thing which we are trying, which I'm working on currently. That how are these seeds circulating? What kind of knowledge displacements do they involve? Um, and, um, and and um, and 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 what, what kind of shifts in this in sociology do they involve? Uh, as you know, the seeds which have often been nurtured by you know, intergenerationally, by women of the household, uh, get replaced by seeds coming from the market purchased by uh, young people with uh, dreams of prosperity. Uh, sorry, with by young men with dreams of uh, prosperity. So that's one. And then secondly, another interest of mine is really the 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 Right to Information Act, and I'm also. Just seeing how that has evolved uh, since 2005. So basically, we are approaching its 20th year in 2025. Uh, So these are two areas in which I anticipate working going forward. Or not anticipate, I'm working on going forward. I mean, now and going forward.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And I look forward to reading and uh, learning more about this. Thank you for uh, taking time out and doing this. and, And good luck with the rest of the semester and the summer and um, the, the rest of the year.